there's a gap between men and women, but there's an even bigger gap between white woman and Asian woman. What is an Asian woman supposed to be like? And a lot of Asian women actually report like in the Western society, having to fulfill more emotional needs for their colleagues. They're expected to get involved in diversity and inclusion efforts. It's like an HR job. So it's kind of fascinating to kind of learn about all these issues that people face, not just as women, but also as double minority women. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Acevil helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Winnie. Excited to have you on the show. You are writing an important book on double minority representation in entrepreneurship. And I thought it would be a fun way to kind of like get both a mixture of both the personal and of course academic from your perspective about what is happening and also what needs to change. So on that note, could you please introduce yourself real quick? Hey, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. So my name is Winnie and I'm originally born and raised in Canada. And growing up in Canada, I had a very multicultural upbringing. I had friends from all over the world because people were just immigrants from everywhere. But the cool thing about growing up in Canada was that I was a product of scholarships. So I got to study in French-speaking Canada, the United Kingdom, and in China. And that was an amazing experience for me to just understand what the world was like outside of the Western world and to find a part of my own identity in China and in Asia. So after working a couple of years after graduating from school, I made the decision to actually drop everything, quit my job, get rid of my lease and and move with just one suitcase to Singapore and give myself six months to find a job. So that's kind of how I ended up moving to Singapore. I ended up just networking, getting coffees with a ton of people and just sharing my story with them. And that's also the basis of how I ended up writing a book too. My book's called You Don't Have to Look the Part. And throughout writing this book, I got to learn a lot more about the subconscious reasons for why I ended up writing this book and why I ended up moving to Singapore. But I'm happy to share more about it throughout this chat. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because you chose the title, You Don't Have to Look the Part. And it's interesting because I think there's an element of stagecraft, right? You don't have to look and the part, right? Whatever the part is. So could you share a little bit more about how you came up with the title and what it means to you? Yeah. Honestly, the title came 
my my working title initially was called East Asian Woman in Entrepreneurship. And so I have gone through a hybrid model in like hybrid publishing this book where I had gotten a ton of pre-orders early on back in November 2022 to help fund the publishing of the book. And at the time, the working title, yes, was East Asian Woman in Entrepreneurship. At the time, it was just a stale like title because I didn't know really what anything catchy. People thought it was right. going to be a textbook, <laughs> but it, it sounded like a textbook. So be, I, yeah. <laughs> I think it wasn't that easy like as a sell back then. But now that I've changed the title to you don't have to look the part, like people get why I'm writing it. And it actually came about because when I was researching this book, I went through just like researching and profiling a ton of like East Asian female entrepreneurs. And one of them, her name is Vikita. She's the founder of Tatcha, a mm-hmm. beauty company. And like she told, she shares a story about how she, what she founded her company after nine years, she got private investors on board. And those private investors actually told her that she didn't look like a CEO, even though she actually went to Harvard business school, she'd worked in the, the beauty industry for many years before that. And the company was growing double digits every single year. So because of that, that was actually the name of like a sub chapter, like a mini chapter in the book. And then it just resonated with me when I was thinking about the book, because I realized the bigger picture about this isn't just about East Asian women entrepreneurship, but it's about anyone who's diverse or is a minority, whether you're like homosexual or whether you're Black, Latino, whether you're a minority as a woman or transgender, it really is about not being part of the majority and that you don't have to be, you don't have to see someone who looks like the the role you want to have to, to, to go for that. You can actually build it yourself, build your own path, and you can be the role model for others in mm. who follow you afterwards. Mm. So yeah, that's kind of how the title came about. It really was just a subsection of one story that really inspired me about the purpose of the book is really about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think there's an interesting piece they talk about, right? Which is, I think, the word majority, right? And I think there are so many different majorities, right? So when I'm in Singapore, for example, my Asian identity, I'm majority, right? And in America, it's a minority, for example, right? So, and I think you kind of shared a little bit about how you've moved, right? Between Canada, between Singapore. So, you know, different identities can be different majorities. In fact, different professions have different majorities as well. So how do you feel about that? Like, is it natural for majorities and minorities? Is it natural for outsiders and insiders? How do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So uh, when I think about my own experience in Canada and growing up in the Western world, I also studied in the UK. I also studied in France. I, I went to INSEAD. And I remember when I was at, like, I, I was at INSEAD, I was thinking about moving. I was moving to France. I speak business level French. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I I was sitting in one of these luxury goods companies, their info sessions, and I was thinking like, oh, maybe I'll explore luxury goods. I love, I'm I'm super interested in it. And I noticed they were saying, you know what? We love women. 
90% of our, of our company is made up of women. And then they showed in the next slide and it shows like their leadership. And it's like, they're like, oh yeah, but all of them are in the junior levels, basically like shop floor, like salespeople. None of them are in management. None of them are in senior management or in the executive. And it's a family owned company. So I was like, okay. My initial reaction was like, this is so great. <laughs> and then it's like slowly like you even track, you even track your leadership and the gender right. representation and leadership and you're showing this to us. Right. And it's like so negative for me. Yeah. And as an Asian woman, especially if you're living in France, you there's an expectation that you bring this Asian perspective as well. <laughs> like you've got networks and in Asia or whatever, and you can bring the business in and you can speak Chinese. I don't know about you, but my Chinese, it's worse. It's actually worse than my French. <laughs> <laughs> so less business subprime level. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, yeah. I, that's kind of how I realized, like, I got to stop this process. I don't think this is the right fit for me. Right. And that's also how I ended up steering back and returning back to yeah. Singapore after my MBA was because I, I noticed in terms of the majority and like the expectations of Asian people in the Western world are a bit different. Like in the tech industry as well, there's a huge, there's a ton of research about how like East Asians, they're really recruited and they're very, their income levels relative are like as a, as a minority are extremely high, higher than the majority, the Caucasian majority. But then there's like a broken rung for them where they don't get promoted into managerial roles. So that's subconsciously how I end up did up back in Singapore. Mm. And in Singapore, although the majority of like the population here in Singapore and in Asia is like visually Asian, I do remember like I was I, I was having dinner at this restaurant. It's called Sear. <laughs> it was called Sear. It was like on the top of Singapore Lounge Tower. Great steak restaurant. And mm. there was a Caucasian man serving me at the restaurant. I remember being like, how are you serving me? And mm. so the fact that I even had to question that in my mind, mm. because internally I'm so used to minorities, like non-Caucasians, mm. like being in in, ser in the service industry, it really kind of taught me a lot about my own, like how we kind of have been programmed. And this translates to a lot of companies here in Southeast Asia. I've worked in, I think maybe four companies now since I've moved to Singapore. And what I've seen across like many of these multinational companies is that like when I look up, there's a lot of, or when you look at the senior leadership of them, a lot of them are Caucasian. You see very rarely people at the junior levels who mm. are of this Western background. And so I think that also like inherently as an Asian makes you feel like, am I not good enough as mm. an Asian? Am I... Am I not like, do I have to be more Western to fit in? For me, mm. I actually kind of believe that in multinational environments, there is that expectation to be a bit more Western. I know you have a degree, you have a couple of degrees from the West, <laughs> myself yeah. too. And I, and I feel like this Western perspective is very respected. The assertive culture is very respective. But I feel like it's important to also recognize the strengths that we bring as Asians as well and the Asian culture too. So, yeah, I do feel like even though we're part of the majority here in Asia, uh, there is still in, in a lot of ways a bit of a broken rung for many Asians to progress into higher levels of senior leadership. Yeah. 
And what's interesting is that, you know, just talking about, for example, kind of like racial in terms of equity and inclusion, but also talking about kind of like the double minority, right? So for example, about the bamboo ceiling times the glass ceiling, right? So what happens in that situation? Like what, I mean, you've done quite a bit of research, right? And uh, so tell me more about that. Yeah, so I do have some facts and figures about this. <laughs> uh, shoot away. Do a bit of research. <laughs> Only years of research. There we go. <laughs> yes. So globally, like for my book, I had like, I was really researching, just learning a lot about representation, firstly of women in, in, in leadership. And so what I found was that women, of course, like only 15% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. And like a big one for me in the tenet of this book was about entrepreneurship and only 2% of venture capital funding goes towards women. Also, one third of businesses are owned by women. So it's hyper under-indexed. I looked into a lot of those like factors behind it. Some of them are internal versus external. Internal could be like as women, we're a bit more more risk averse in some ways. We're we don't we're very careful about what we say. Even even you can tell as I'm speaking to you as well, right? I'm a bit Seems like to me. I'm very thoughtful about anything that I say, and of course, like there there's that aspect of it as a woman of like if you show too much emotion, you can be considered too dramatic, and it's a it's a it's a big issue about about women's issues and like how women are portrayed. So that's one part of it, like what you're talking about, the glass ceiling. Then there's this whole bamboo ceiling of how is Asian, being Asian or being a minority, any type of minority, affecting people as well. So that double whammy, as I call it, um, it does have a like a compound effect on people's careers. So Lean In and McKinsey, they have this. It, 2022 report about the gender gap. And they describe it as a broken rung where for every 109 men who are promoted, um, I think it's 87 women are promoted and 82 women of color are promoted. So this is industry-wide and this is how they look at it as color. Right. There's another research report from Ascend, which is like a Californian organization of Asian professionals. And they looked at five major like tech companies, Google, LinkedIn, HP, Intel, and I think it might have been Yahoo, but I forget the last one, where it showed that one in 285 Asian women in like in the organization holds an executive position compared to one in 125 white women and one in 87 white men. So it really shows when you look at, there's a gap between men and women, but there's an even bigger gap. Like the gap even extends even further between white women and Asian women. So like it definitely shows and it's a lot has to do with the expectations of what is a woman. And there's a lot of it's ingrained when we're young as well, but also what's, what is an Asian woman supposed to be like? And a lot of Asian women actually report like in the Western society, having to fulfill more emotional needs for their colleagues, which is Actually, I get it. <laughs> I get it. I see it myself too, right? They're seen as the person that people can confide in. They're expected to like listen to all of this. They're expected to get involved in diversity and inclusion efforts, which a lot of the time these DNI roles end up being like they end up being their own like roles themselves, like unpaid, but a completely different job. It's right. like an HR job. So it's kind of fascinating to kind of learn about all these issues that people face, not just as women, but also as double minority women. Yeah, that resonates with me. My last company, I had a Caucasian co-founder 
woman and myself. And I think we definitely pitched and we had a VC once. I was like, he was kind of offhand, but it was like, oh, we get to count you twice. You meant for the diversity score, right? I was, I was like, haha. And I was like, wow, that's an awkward joke to make, right? Not the one I would have made. I think there's that interestingness, which is, it's not bad that they have an explicit goal, I guess, to increase diversity. So they have, they're saying like, well, we're counting diversity scores, so it's good to have you. But I think that same, I don't know what's the word, system or structure or goalposts does make it feel a lot more transactional, right? In that conversation all of a sudden, right? Which is like we're making scoring points for them towards diversity. And I think that happens a lot for a lot of different initiatives, right? So that's like, that's like we did this initiative, we did this event, we had this thing. And some of my female colleagues and friends are kind of get a bit frustrated, right? About how like the sponsorship and mentorship aspect about like, there's a lot of like stuff happening, but it's not really coming together, right? So I'm just kind of curious about how you feel about that. Yeah, I think in terms of diversity and inclusion, I've, I've worked in a bunch of organizations and I've been really fortunate. Like I really love like some of them where you know that they really take it seriously. And right. You know that they take it seriously when the training that they give their managers, a lot of organizations, and I've worked in like the startup industry before too. The startup industry, honestly, for me, I didn't really enjoy as much because Mm. I felt like there's like a lot of egos and people who've just started the company and have a lot of legacy. They end up becoming managers, but they're not always the best managers at times, but they're there because they just have the legacy. But what I found was like some really great organizations, they they take diversity and inclusion very seriously where they track first off at every rung of the organization, like what is the diversity representation at, at those rungs? And as long as like just being aware of it really like allows people to consider when I'm interviewing, make sure that there's half woman, half male. It doesn't have to be exact, but just being aware about it really helps, especially because for me, I notice the biggest one of the biggest reasons why women are a bit pushed back in the organizations of of being promoted and progressing in their careers is because of childbirth. Only right. women are capable of childbirth. And as a whenever you go and you're pregnant or and you give birth, it's a two year journey where you're basically out of career progression. The first year, you're basic. You've got a bit of a parasite like growing in you, and Ooh. and you're tired all the time. You're throwing up, and you can't even tell people what's going on for a, like until halfway through, something along those lines. And then you, after you give birth and you're recovering, you're away for somewhere between three to twelve months, depending on which country you're in, and it's very rough because a lot of things change. The longer the maternity leave or the the difference in the maternity leave versus the paternity leave really sets the stage where managers, are they going to just cover for two weeks or four weeks for men? But for a woman to be away for six months is like a big deal. They they have to hire someone new. And I caught myself actually once where I was working at a big tech company. We had hired a woman and on her third day at that company, she took maternity leave. And I was like, why did we hire her? (laughs) Now we have to hire a contractor. And it was, I was like, oh, this is the worst. Like, I I can't believe she would do this to us. But at the same time, like, what, like, I know you have two kids, like, 
it's tough planning pregnancies. You just don't know when it's going to happen. People try for many years. And I have a lot of friends who've gone through the IVF journey as well. So it's a complicated journey. And so for women, often they they don't feel like they can move jobs when they're pregnant or when they're trying to get pregnant because it's a sign of disloyalty or it's difficult to to interview when you're pregnant and you're big and, and people don't want to sponsor that. So I think that's the biggest issue for women and like that that they're facing is this whole maternity. So in terms of inclusion, a lot of inclusive policies is really about decreasing that gap between paternity and maternity leave. So some countries they allow people to like couples to share the bir- share that like full year or even two years and they can allocate back and forth between the two of them. But also other inclusive policies are really about like okay, Given that people have, we work, let's say, in Mm. an organization, your contract says you work from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day. How do we make it so that whenever we have these social events, they're within that time frame so that people who have to go home and pick up their kids or they've got child rearing responsibilities, they can do all these things. But it could also be other things like maybe you need to go to the mosque and pray or you need to you have other activities outside of work. Right. So I think in terms of inclusion, celebrating inclusion and allowing it so that whatever is considered work activities, whether it's social activities within work are contained to the hours that are agreed to from an employer with an employee. So I think like there's some other inclusion points as well as like having people in the promotion, those promotion committees actually share and moderate how those conversations go. Like for women, they're often promoted based off of past performance versus men are often promoted based off of potential. So really monitoring, Mm -hmm. like, how is this conversation going? Are we, we're talking about this this candidate's past, their potential, that they were great, that they could lead if they, but how have they actually shown this in the past, right? So I think there's different policies that different organizations that I've researched and have fortunately been a part of in the past, like that Mm. have really shown to me what inclusivity can be like. And that can also be like some of these great tech companies create like accessibility features on their accessibility features on their like laptops or even I remember I was I was sitting in a conversation with a Paralymp the Singapore's Paralympic athlete and she was sharing about how during COVID, like a lot of malls, they'll have like only certain doors that are open to manage the crowds. Mm. And a lot of those doors were not automatic. So for her as a Paralympian who is going and she has to use a wheelchair to get Mm. in. She couldn't enter a lot of these malls and she ended up staying home a lot during COVID, which Mm. is really horrible for your mental health to begin with, right? right? And also people with oxygen masks as well, she was sharing with me, because there's a lot of regulation around the masks, even wearing them outside, they couldn't wear one of those like masks because they, they need an oxygen mask and they'd have to go back and forth. So I think... A lot of it really starts with just being aware about Mm -hmm. different needs and the accessibility, not just for like East Asian women, but also for people who are accessible or other minorities. You had previously mentioned about something called over-mentored, under-sponsored. I think Mm -hmm. that's actually a great encapsulation, right, of the Mm -hmm. feeling, right? Could you share a little bit more about what that meant? Yep. So there's a Harvard Business Review article that shares about over how women are over mentored but under sponsored. And in this article, and I refer to it in my book as well, in structured programs of mentorship within organizations, they find that women have very different experiences than men do. 
for women in these in these structured mentorship mm-hmm. programs, they often, they might ask, hey, I'd love to learn how to grow or develop in this area. And they say, hey, yeah, if you'd like a role in that, you need to show past performance. Okay. <laughs> and therefore, we're going to put you on all these extra assignments. You can be the diversity and equity inclusion mm-hmm. manager while also doing your full-time job. You will also do these like three extra projects that will be shown to senior leadership down the line later on. And so these women feel like they're just, piled on more work, but then they don't really see much results after that. They're just exhausted because they also are taking on a bit more work at home that's unpaid versus for men. What they find is that they are openly sponsored where they'll sit down with their men- their structured mentor, assigned mentor, and their mentor will just say, Hey, like, where do you want to go in your career? And they're like, hey, I'd love to one day be the CMO of this organization, chief marketing officer. And so their sponsor will say, yeah, let me connect you with a bunch of people who are in marketing, whether it's inside and outside of the organization so that you can learn more about it. You can also gain connections about it and maybe you'll find a role in that area. So it's as if the men are already deserving of it and the book's already, the, the black book is already open to them where they can pick and choose who to connect with versus for the woman, they still have to go and shoot and like show and prove that they can do it before they can even get a contact or build a relationship with anyone. And many and most of the senior leadership roles are with men too. So for them, they're even with networks, the way that networks work within our organizations is that they're a bit gender-based. And a lot of men actually, I remember Michael Spence, (laughs) former vice president of the United States, He had a policy where he would not take a one-on-one meeting with any woman because he never wanted to be under the spotlight of having sexually harassed her or assaulted her or anything like that. So as a woman for myself, like not having access to senior leaders and the majority of them are men is a very challenging situation to be in because what we know is that actually your progression in an organization is heavily dependent on your network in the organization rather than, you know, the projects you've done, because a lot of it really is the spotlight that you get and the platform that you get, which is really about who's willing to listen to you as well. And speaking about speaking and listening, Shaoning from Indo Central, who was a prior brave guest and interview, shared about how she felt like the world of business was very masculine language from perspective. And she felt that the people and the founders who struggled to fundraise were often their languages didn't match, right? And so she spent a lot of time coaching them to be more, from, in her words, masculine in their language. And she also shared that actually what was interesting was that the investors that she works with as well actually also have the same bias in looking for the same masculine language as well. And so she ends up kind of coaching both sides of the table towards that same norm, right, in that sense. I know, I know you've a lot of thoughts about this. How do you think about it? Yeah, I listened to that podcast as well, like way long ago before this one, actually. But it was so, there is a lot of research out there about like even just job descriptions. So Glassdoor has published research how a lot of the job descriptions are about independence and leadership. Leadership being like not so much mentoring others, but more so being independent and some of those words, I remember one of them was rock star, which I actually use this word myself. I'm always like, oh, you're such a rock star to like other people when I'm cheering them on. But I realize I have to change my own tone as well because 
the research shows that women don't feel like Rockstar mm. describes them. Rockstar mm. seems like you're on your own island and you're just killing it. Versus women are a bit collaborative. They really seek collaboration. And I know in that podcast, she was sharing that women ask questions a lot. They want to understand. They seek to understand mm. and to adapt accordingly. And so when they speak, they might have their tone go up in a question like, oh, well, I actually ask a lot of questions, but but they could say, I, I, I always ask for confirmation, like, oh, is this okay? Or how is this? Hope this is okay. Versus for men, they're just like, this is the way it is. And I think it's because also society's expectation of women is to be a lot more collaborative than to be independent. And Sheryl Sandberg also talks about this too, where as a child, a woman might, and a, a girl and a boy might be exhibiting the same like behavioral features. And the boy will be considered like a leader, a strong leader, very uh, assertive and like independent versus the woman might be considered aggressive, right? Because mm -hmm. she's not fitting the gender norm. But like, I believe that women, and I, I do believe with that podcast guest about women being a, a bit more successful, if they understand how to communicate to men and live in this masculine world, because men are make up the majority of senior leadership roles, and therefore they dictate what is expected of other people in the way that they see the world, which is as a man and very masculine, whether it's a language, even for myself, I speak relatively in a different pace that to you, even than I would speak to my girlfriend, I would speak mm. in a way higher pace, I'd speak a lot more freely to her. Mm. But I think the language to, to begin with, like job descriptions is one example of why mm. a lot of roles can be very gender based. And also when we think about a nurse versus a doctor, for example, we think about a nurse being a woman and a doctor being a man. It's actually untrue in Singapore, the majority of doctors are actually females. <laughs> it's really, it's really interesting. But we would think about the job description as even just like, we might say some the most extreme and the worst case scenario, they'll say, he is good at this, he is the good at that, when they're like writing the drop description. I think people are relatively smart enough now or more like understanding to drop those pronouns. But at the same time, they're very masculine based because they think that there's a man in the picture versus for the nurse, they might think, okay, we need to be more collaborative. She needs to be very caring, but they don't put these adjectives with the doctor, although doctors and nurses actually have very similar, actually similar capabilities and roles where they're doing a lot of nurses. Actually, I trust a nurse more than a doctor because nurses just see so many more cases. They're triaging so much that they can make decisions very quickly or they can diagnose a lot quicker than waiting for a doctor. So, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with job roles, how they're written, not just about pronouns, but also about verbs and actions and adverbs about or adjectives about them. Mm. And I think uh, Yolanda from Uncommon, she's building a community for female leaders, right? So for them to help each other, but also to mentor each other as well, to climb that. I think there's also other communities like that. For example, I know the co-founders of Chief, which is a female leadership community in the US. And I remember sitting in their first clubhouse. It was still being half-constructed. And I was thinking to myself like, oh, uh, is this like young YPO, right? Uh, young President's Organization? Is this like EO, Entrepreneurs Organization? So I think it was interesting to see, I think, the birth of these communities, right? So how do you think about what the right, I don't know what's the word, approach to sponsorship and mentorship that you think makes sense 
for the next generation. Yeah, I think for women in particular, it's very tough as a senior woman to mentor others. They're exhausted generally because because there's only usually like one woman, <laughs> maybe there's two or three who are at the absolute top echelon of an organization. They're exhausted from having to attend all these diversity events and just represent that there's a woman at the like in leadership. And I remember when I was in consulting, it was usually one woman to 10 to, to nine men out of like a room of 10 people. It would always just be one woman. And so they have to like, rather than the men, they can just rotate around. They have to attend every single event. So they're exhausted already. Then all the, these like female junior employees are asking them for mentorship. And there's only so much that they, these women can do. They're also trying to like continue on, become senior partner. Like they've got to sell work, all these things. So it's tough. I would say Sheryl Sandberg actually really originates this whole like lean in circles where you have, when you're not able to get the mentorship of people above you, you build out these circles of women who are at the same level as you or slightly above or below where you can talk about different things. So actually, Jess Lee, the, the former founder and CEO of Polyvore, she started this organization called All Raise, where female venture capitalists can join and they're placed into different cohorts of co-mentorship so that they can share and build their own networks in the venture capital space. Because I think venture capital only has something around like 9% women in the space. It's very man-driven. I think it's something like 40% of venture capitalists come from three schools in the US, Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford. So it's a very homophilic like organization. So by creating this all-raise platform where like they meet kind of, they have their own little circles, and for their cohorts based off of their off of their level, they're able to actually like do also like work on deals together as well, build this network across the women. So I do believe some like respects to that. I've also heard a bit of negative feedback about some of these circles as well, not all raised, but some other ones that exist here in Southeast Asia, where sometimes there's not enough of the same like level of people in the room because Let's say like, there's only so many tech companies, let's say major tech companies here in Singapore. There's a lot of conflict of interest where you don't really want to share too much about what's going on in your organization. There's not a much enough like diversity to create a safe space, actually, because you might be in the same circle as someone who might be hiring you at the next organization that's not safe. And there's a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Mentorship is really when you can fully trust in that person and have that person share their own experiences and you share your experiences to problem solve. And usually the best mentors are outside of your organization because they don't affect hiring promotion decisions, but they can help you problem solve with your manager of what to do in these situations. Versus sponsorship is usually best in your organization because they're there to fight for you or to, to advocate for you in those, because most of your career, most of the decisions that affect your career are made in a room that you're not a part of, like promotion cycles or promotion committees or performance review committees. So over about your question about mentorship and sponsorship, I believe that's one part of it is yes, having a community of women at different organizations who are going through similar things can help. I also believe in that this is not just a woman's issue, it is a gender issue. 
where, and it's a gender initiative. And I agree with not saying women's initiative, but more of gender, because men also need to feel comfortable supporting women. And just like I shared with, with the example of Mike Spence, he didn't feel comfortable supporting women because he's scared about sexual harassment lawsuits, for example. So I can understand that point of view, but we have to find and create a safe space where that kind of communication, that kind of sponsorship can be made or whether it's having male sponsorship like allies that are in structured programs so that women can build their networks. And like I said, women are over-mentored and under-sponsored, so they won't necessarily get fully the sponsorship that we have defined, but at least it does start to build their network. But just having involving men in the conversation, because men have their own issues too. Men also feel like there's an expectation that they need to be strong. They cannot be vulnerable. They have to be the breadwinner. They have to earn more than everyone else. They have to be hyper-masculine. They have to be big and take up space. They have to be dominating. So it is a gender conversation rather than just a woman's conversation. What does the path look forward in Southeast Asia? Because a lot of these concepts and themes, for example, are obviously very much prevalent, for example, on Twitter, which, like you say, represents the West and so, so forth. And now, of course, China has its own set of conversations altogether. And so does India has its own set of conversations within the Southeast Asia context. And I think we kind of like alluded to this earlier as obviously not only different cultures, but different countries, different identities, and everybody's just like, I don't know, one hour away, right, from each other, right? So I think that's an interesting dynamic for this region. So how do you think about this melting pot slash kind of like flow of folks in Southeast mm -hmm. Asia? Firstly, I think the biggest advantage for Southeast Asia, or at least in Singapore, or and actually in a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, is this foreign domestic helper situation. I actually, it really helps progress women in the workforce. Because women, like if I were an employer, I wouldn't have to think twice about sending a woman to, let's say, Taiwan for work for a week, because she, she likely has help at home. And by equaling the playing field of the opportunities for men and women by having in-home support, it means that women can progress and women can be seen as leaders and it's normal for them to work. And I think Singapore is great about this too. Like the population has been dwindling. It's like the biggest national security <laughs> issue here in Singapore, right? It's like, please give us more babies. It's, it's, it's part of the national parade every year. <laughs> it's very clear to the Singaporean population, like what the agenda is, right? So they make a really great job of encouraging women in the workforce. And there's actually a lot of Singaporean companies where women are leaders too. So I think Southeast Asia can actually be a bit more ahead in some ways than the Western world in supporting women in their careers. Yeah, so I think of the future of Southeast Asia, I'm actually not sure about the diversity here because I understand like visas have been declining, but it's also because the Singaporean population is becoming a lot more educated over time. And this middle income is growing within Southeast Asia. So I think it's great that Southeast Asia is growing. And I hope eventually, in terms of representation, it will 
hopefully we'll see a lot more Singaporeans or Southeast Asians taking on leadership roles in even the multinational companies as well. Because that's something that I described earlier in this podcast, where when many people look up in these multinational organizations, it's often imported talent. But I think our talent is getting strong enough. It's even since I've been here over the last eight years, I have seen it. And when I worked in consulting, like I worked with people who were like Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, like graduates, and they're so sharp. <laughs> a lot of them were the presidential scholars that like cut their bonds <laughs> to, to go into the private industry. So I really think that Singapore and like they're doing a really great job of investing in people, sending them to some of the best schools in the world, and then bringing them back to eventually become the leaders of these organizations. But at the same time, I think it's great to also start looking at every rung of the organization, actually having just testing out what is this DNI? Can we report how many people have are women? How many of them are identify as like other minorities or colors or races? I think Asia, it's tough to do race actually, because in Singapore, I think it's something like 70 to 80% are Chinese themselves. There's other differences that people have, like accessibility and disabilities is a huge one that I'm starting to learn a lot more about and I'm getting interested in. Because apparently 25% of people in the world have disabilities. So you could have a disability, but not know about it, by the way. But how can we include these people in our organizations to make better products so that we can reach more people so that we're actually serving the general population even better? So yeah, I hope that answers your question a bit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So when have you personally have been brave? Yeah, I think... There are a couple of times that I've been brave. Like one of them was moving to Singapore by myself. I had one friend here. She's since moved <laughs> and, and interviewing and just finding a job and building a life here. But I think actually the biggest thing and the scariest thing that I've done, which is the definition of being brave to me, is sharing stories about my life and reflecting about them, whether on this podcast, but through this book that I've written called You Don't Have to Look the Part. Because it's scary when you're actually sharing something that there's a cancel culture out there these days, right? You say the wrong thing and you're canceled for like three to five years. And and recording a podcast like this, it's going to forever be out there in the world. You can't change what you've already said. At the same time, writing a book, this is something that there might be something that a lot of things people don't agree with. And it's kind of scary. You're putting yourself on the line for people to give you negative reviews or to criticize your book or to say it's, it doesn't go as deep as they would like. And everyone's going to have their own opinion. But I realized that being yourself, it's very hard to be yourself. <laughs> but yeah, I think stamping and like putting this permanence in sharing my stories publicly. Yeah, I think that's very, very, very reflective and brave of you to share that. Could you share about why you think it's hard for you to put yourself out there right, in terms of the writing? Like, was that feedback? Was it scary? Because, but, because you started the process to write it. No one forced you to write it. So you're writing it and it's scary. So how, how does that work? Yeah. yeah. So initially my book was primarily centered around the stories of these East Asian female founders and right. what we learned from their stories. Right. And then I layered in a lot of research as well on top of that. And I'm like, great, this book is good. I'm very proud of this book. And I had gone on a pre-order drive. So I crowdfunded the first print of this book and 
had many people like who wanted to become beta readers and give me feedback as I went along. So I had I submitted these first drafts to a bunch of my friends or a bunch of these like people who've pre-ordered. And they would come back to me and they would say, this is all great, but I don't know why it's you that's writing this book. There's not enough of Winnie in the book. And so I think it was very scary to open it up and open and think about past lives. I think the tough part is I don't want to be a victim in my life and I don't Mm. want to point fingers and blame people for anything. That's a big core tenet and value that I have. Mm. So I didn't want to say in this company, this is what happened to me. I was systemically discriminated. I didn't want that happening. I wanted to be more of a positive one. And so it helped me to reflect and share about, and I tried to share as objectively as possible, like, this is my experience. Like when I was recruiting in France, these are the facts that they presented to me. And this is how I felt. I felt like I couldn't be myself. They were expecting me as a woman, well, me as an employee, as a woman, I have to be better than the male candidate they could hire because they might think that I might take maternity leave at some point. Then as an East Asian woman, I also have to be better than a Caucasian person. So I have to offer networks, language, all these things. So yeah, I think the scary thing was really just sharing my true deep thoughts that I've never really shared with anyone about my life, whether it was the segregation that I felt in school, which that maybe my school won't, my undergraduate might not want to invite me back to speak because I'm sharing, this is truly how Mm. I felt, right? So it's scary because there's a big cancel culture here, like happening, at least in the Western world, that once you say something, it can be turned against you later on in your life. And People change over time too. Like something that was used that someone said 10 years ago mm. might not be representative of what they represent now. Right. On that note, thank you so much for sharing so authentically about what you feel and what your personal experience has been. Uh, I'd like to summarize the three big themes I got from this conversation. The first is thank you so much for, I think, sharing about your exploration and research on the glass ceiling versus the bamboo ceiling. I thought it was a very nice way for you to share about why you cared enough about it and also about what started you on that journey and also what was the research and findings that came out. So I thought it was interesting to hear a lot of the different aspects that shows up in terms of promotions, in terms of retention, in terms of different work scenarios. So that was really interesting. Secondly, thanks for sharing about being over-mentored and under-sponsored. thought that was a whole theme about how folks can really help support women in their journey, either you're a male or a female executive, but what is it that you need to do to help sponsor folks and vice versa, if you are a female employee, what you need to do in order to get that sponsorship and move forward is clear. Uh, and lastly, thanks so much uh, for sharing about your own personal writing experience. And I guess it's not so much about writing because you can tie it and so on so forth, but more like writing your own story and interweaving that with the stories of other folks. So thank you so much for sharing all of that, Winnie. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.